So before we get started this morning, I wanted to take a minute to remind you about the new podcast that Steve and I are doing. Uh, Every week we sit down to talk about uh, things that are going on in the world around us and the point of view that Christians ought to have. Uh, It's called A Kingdom Perspective, uh, and it's now available on uh, both iTunes and the Google Play Store for free. So uh, if you have an Apple device or an Android device, we don't want to play favorites. You know, it'll work either way. Uh, We're also working on getting it up uh, in in our app as well, so you can uh, can use it in our app. It's not quite there yet, and that's on me. Um, So hopefully that'll be soon, uh, but I just want to let you know that it is available in uh, the the Apple Store and uh, on Google Play. Um, Let's pray, and then we'll continue with our Thank God series. Uh, Father, um, we want to approach you uh, in a spirit of thanksgiving. Um, And Lord, there's so many things to be thankful for. Um, Father, I pray that that as we we, uh, explore your word, uh, that our hearts are open to to hear what you have to say to us this morning. That's in Jesus' name. Amen. So if I were to ask you about the best gift you've ever received, um, I wonder what you would say. You know, I mean, like, besides Jesus and eternal life and all that Christian stuff, what I'm talking about is, uh, you remember when you used to, like, get the JCPenney catalog and start going through it and circling things? So I realized that the Kids Own Kids are in here with us this morning, so let me explain. JCPenney catalog is an Amazon wish list from the dark ages. That's what it is. So we, we used to go through and see pictures of things that we thought were cool. I just flicked that off my ear. And, uh, and we would circle them, and then we would just like leave the catalog like laying open on the coffee table for our parents to find um, so that uh, they, they would know what we would want for Christmas. They would know, uh, what, what, you know what our Christmas list would be, right? Um, and today we kind of, you know, we do that online. It takes the fun out of it. I, well, I noticed, have you noticed we're starting to get catalogs again? I don't know if you're like, like I've, st- I've gotten a couple this year. I'm like, man, what is, th- I don't know what this is anymore. I don't even understand how to interact with this thing in my hands. Um, so have you ever gotten a great gift? This, something, and, and something that you really wanted, but thought it was like so crazy that you'd never actually get it? You know, like you go to, you'd, some of the stuff you'd circle, it was like the, like the dream, like, yeah, right, I'm never getting this, but you'd circle it anyway, or you circle the whole page. I did that. You guys do that. Circle the whole page. So I've gotten a, a few gifts like that in my life, just a really great gift, unexpected, totally over the top. Uh, my wife, for my birthday, bought me a Fender Stratocaster electric guitar. Uh, this was a little, a little while ago now, but it was like totally unexpected birthday present, like crazy over the top, um, the amount that she spent on that. Um, my, my parents bought me a Chevy S10 pickup truck when I was in college, totally unexpected, over the top, more than I would have anticipated ever receiving uh, as a gift. Um, and, and something you should know about me, I actually don't like getting gifts very much. Like, I don't know if you're, if you're like me, like, I don't know, you, you if you've read the, uh, the five love languages, uh, the, the, you know, the getting, receiving gifts is one of the love languages, that's like really low on my list. It's right next to touch. Like, don't touch me and don't give me stuff. <laughs> right? That's, that's kind of who I am in a nutshell. 
And so, like, it's awkward for me to receive a gift. I don't know what to do with my hands, you know, when I, when I, when I get a present. And I love Christmas and everything, but there's so much pressure, isn't there? Like, so much pressure to get gifts for everyone, to get the right gift for, for the right person. And then you open a gift, right? On Christmas, you're sitting there, you open a gift, and if it's way better than the thing that you got the person, you're a total failure. Like, you're like, oh, no, I don't have time to fix this. <laughs> like, your gift is wrapped and in your hands, you're about to open it. So like, uh, oh no. But then it's even worse. Like if, if you open the gift and it's worse than what you bought them, for a minute you're like, I won Christmas. I win. Hooray. But then you start to wonder like, wait a minute. How come they didn't give me a better gift? Like, do they know me at all? Like, why would they think I would like this? Do, like, didn't they put any thought into it? Don't they love me? Don't, don't I deserve better than this? Like, I deserve better than this, you know, than this gift that you bought me. And the answer is, the answer is no. You know, don't I deserve better? The answer is no, you don't. You don't deserve better. It's because it's a gift, right? And by definition, you don't deserve it. You, you don't deserve a gift. If you deserved it, it wouldn't be a gift. It would be a paycheck if you deserved it. You don't deserve a gift. It's a gift, right? If, it, the problem is that our culture has become so performance-based that nothing in life is free. If you want a raise or a promotion at work, you have to prove yourself, right? If you want an A in class, you have to earn it by doing the work or, you know, at least showing up. Um, <laughs> that's a whole other rant. So even like Christmas time, right? Even Santa Claus is looking for good behavior. You know, you, you, all year, right? You, you have to, you don't be on the naughty list. You, you, better, be, you better be good because you know why? The elf on the shelf is watching. That's why. <laughs> so you better be good because he'll see, you know, he'll know. I did a Google search this week. I did it. I searched on Google this week. This is great. I searched, I was looking for a story. I'm like, oh, I, want a, I want a great funny story about like someone trying to earn a gift because that's ridiculous. Who would do that? So I want a story about someone to earn a gift. And so I did a Google search and, and, and it was, I searched for stories about earning a gift. And you know what I got? I got four pages of offers for me to take surveys to earn gift cards. They're gift cards, not take a survey to earn it cards. If I have to earn it, it's not a gift, right? The gift, that's the, the like, biggest misnomer ever. It's a gift card. It's not a gift card. It's a reward card. It's a card that you get for like doing a bunch of stuff. And then if you do it all right, you, you get the card, right? You can't earn a gift. If I have to work to earn it, it's not a gift. I, I didn't deserve that guitar or that truck. I didn't do anything to earn them for myself. They were expressions of love from people who cared about me. They didn't owe them to me. I couldn't repay them. You know, I mean, I was in college. I'm not like I could, you know, repay that. The only thing I could do in those moments was to say thank you, to, to uh, uh, be appreciative, to have an attitude of thanksgiving. And that's our focus this whole month, being thankful to God. And today, we're going to look at what I think is God's greatest gift to us, uh, his grace. We sing about how amazing it is and, and grace that's greater than all our sins. We sing about how your grace is enough. But I wonder if we, we really understand what grace is, what we're singing about, if we really understand what it means in our lives. Jesus told this story in, in Luke chapter 15 that teaches a lot about grace. And that's where we're going to start this morning in Luke chapter 15 with the parable of the prodigal son. And so we're going to look at uh, Luke chapter 15, a, a kind of a longer passage starting in verse 11 uh, of Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. Your Bible might say the parable of the lost son um, 
or, you know, something else. So verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, and all God's people said, gross, (laughs) right? Longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. See, this story isn't just about a prodigal son or even a loving father. This story is about what we deserve and what we get. It starts with a father who has two sons that seem very different from one another. The younger son wants to be off on his own doing the things that he wants to do the way that he wants to do them. And the older son wants to stay home. He wants to build the estate that one day will belong to him. One son is this irresponsible slacker, this this trust fund brat that has no work ethic, and the other son is this hardworking, you know, family man. And, And the thing is, I don't think these brothers are as different as they seem to be on the surface. And the trouble starts when the younger son cashes in his share of the the family inheritance uh, early. Uh, In that culture, the younger son would have been entitled to to one-third of the estate, uh, and and, uh, assumedly, that's what he gets. He goes to his father, and his father cashes a third of the estate in, uh, in, into into cash. Um, And and obviously, this is a slap in the face. You know, for a son to come to his father while he's still alive uh, is like saying, you know, hurry up and die already. So, so I, you, know, you can give me what you owe me. Just, I wish you would just go away so I can have the stuff. And the younger son believes that his father owes him an inheritance. 
you owe this to me, and, and, and I can't wait to get my hands on it because it's mine. Well, things don't really go as planned in the younger son's life, and, and he finds himself in a foreign country with no money uh, and an empty stomach. And if you're like me, this feels like justice. This feels right for, for the younger son. You know, that he may have thought that he deserved his inheritance early, but this life of poverty is what he actually deserves, right? Serves him right for, for treating his father the way that he did. Serves him right uh, for, for being selfish and, and self-centered. Um, and finally, he gets a job feeding pigs, and we approve. Like, it's about time, right? It's about time this slacker went out and got a job, you know? Get a J-O-B. He's, you know, about time you take some responsibility for your own life and, and, and you know, get a job and provide for yourself. But, but this job was so bad that it, still, it wasn't even providing enough money for him to eat you know, to the point where he was so hungry that he you know, was looking at the, the garbage that pigs eat you know, and like, you're like, man, I wish I could eat that. Oh my God. I've never been in that place where I wish I, wish I could eat that. Um, and so he wasn't doing real well. You know, even though he has this job, he's, he's not doing well. He's not making it on his own, and he realizes that. He realizes, man, I'm not going to make it without some help. The Bible says he came to his senses, is the way the Bible phrases it. And he realized, you know what, it's stupid for me to starve while my father's servants are eating better than I am. Like, why would I eat this, like, pig slop when, like, dad's servants are eating Chick-fil-A every day? And so I'm going back there, and he decides to return and, and work for his father. Get that? He's going to go home and work for his father. So file that away, because this is where it gets interesting. Up to this point, we kind of like this story, right? This disrespectful kid who feels entitled gets what he deserves. I'm not going to make the millennial joke. I won't, I promise you. I love millennials too much. And that's actually not, not actually what's going on with them. In fairness. So this disrespectful kid gets what he deserves. And all that's missing is a chance for the father to say, I told you so, right? And teach him a lesson about the value of hard work. That's the way this story should end, right? Teach your son a lesson about the value of hard work. But that's not what happens. That's not the way Jesus tells the story. The father isn't waiting in the den, you know, to hold his, hold his sins against him like we would expect when he gets home, just, you know, waiting for him. Instead, he runs out to meet him on the road. And his son must have been totally thrown off by that response. Not what he was expecting at all. Uh, but he, he goes on with this rehearsed speech anyway, right? He, he's, he's been you know, going over this over and over again in his head. You know, we see it right in the text where he's like, what am I going to say? This is what I'll say. And then he starts to say it. So he, he, he goes over the speech and he's, he starts to confess his sin. And you know, he, he says, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. Not worthy to be called your son. And before he can even ask for a job, before he can even ask for his father, do you, is there any work that I could do for you? Like anything that I could do uh, that, that, you know, that, that I, I could earn some food? Before he can even make the request, his father makes it clear that nothing short of full restoration waits for him at home. That like when you come home, you're, nothing short of being fully restored to the family is what waits for you. He's welcomed back into the family with full honor, full privileges, like nothing ever happened. And, and the father's quick embrace shows that his love for his son is as strong as it ever was. And it's not that the father wasn't hurt by what the son did. It's not that he wasn't hurt by the son leaving and the son choosing this material stuff over uh, the family. It's not that he wasn't hurt. The pain was real, but the forgiveness is too. There are no grudges. There, there are no steps that must be taken for the younger son to earn back his father's trust. 
there's just grace. There's just welcome home. And it's offensive, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's offensive. It's not fair. He doesn't deserve that. You can't treat him that way after what he did to you. That's not fair. We want, you know, we want this father to drop the hammer. Don't let him get away with that. Don't let him walk all over you like that. It's not fair. See, grace is usually defined as, as God's unmerited favor toward people. God loves me even though I don't deserve it. That's what grace is, right? God loves me even though I don't deserve it. But that falls short of what grace really is. I think grace is more than that. Grace is more than God loves me even though I don't deserve it because that gives me too much credit. That, 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 just, that, that says that, that I don't deserve God's grace, but you know, he gives it and that's awesome. I mean, that's only part of the story. It's not just that we don't deserve it, it's that we deserve something else entirely. Showing kindness to a stranger, that's unmerited favor, right? They didn't deserve it. You know, I don't know them, but I showed them kindness. They didn't do anything to deserve it, but I showed them kindness. But grace is showing that same kindness to an enemy who constantly hurts me over and over and over again, right? Because isn't that what we do to God? We set ourselves up against him, constantly hurt him, make terrible choices, and yet here he is coming out to us on the road, ready to welcome us with open arms. Grace is kind of a tough pill to swallow. Virtually all of our experience tells us that we have to earn acceptance and love and respect. We spend our lives working to earn the things we want. So why should God's love be any different? See, it's hard to blame the older brother for his reaction because we feel the same. The father should just give us what we deserve. Give that slacker what he deserves and give me my party. See, both brothers believed that the father owed them something. The, The younger brother believed that the father owed him an inheritance based on his status as a son. I'm your son, give me that. The older brother thought that his father owed him recognition and celebration based on all the work that he did for him. And it's easy for us to fall into that same kind of thinking, that God owes me something based on my status as his people. I'm a Christian, you owe me. Or based on all the work that I do for you, like, God, I work really hard to live this kind of life. I try to be a good person, you owe me. It's easy for us to think, uh, to to fall into that kind of thinking. And and here's what I want to say to you this morning. God owes you nothing. Like, you get that? God doesn't owe you anything. Not a thing. And that's where grace comes in, because that's depressing. You know, we don't want to end the message there. That's where grace comes in. In order to really appreciate God's grace, we have to go beyond just asking what it is. You know, God gives me something that I don't deserve. We have to ask what it does. What's the point? You know, what, why is it important? So I want to look at three passages from Paul's letters, because Paul uses grace like more than anybody. It's like 150 times in the New Testament. Paul loves this word. And so I want to look at three passages from Paul's letters in the New Testament to answer that question about what does grace do? And so I want to start in, in Romans chapter 3. Conveniently, we'll go in chronological order with these three passages. I want to start in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Paul says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, I love those words, by the way. But now, 
that might be the best thing that the Bible ever says. Those times when the Bible says, but now, where it talks about used to be this way, but now. The, that, you know, but now is a, is a God thing. That's a God expression. God, only God can, can insert a but now into your life. <laughs> but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Paul's clear that that no one can be made right with God by what they do. Faith Absolute trust, total trust in Jesus is the only way back to God. You can't earn it. The Old Testament law is is God's standard for what it takes to be declared righteous. The law, the Old Testament law is the way you earn your way to heaven. So if you are bent on earning your way to heaven, there you go. That's the path. Go to the Old Testament, follow the law perfectly. That's what what needs to happen for you to earn your way uh, to heaven. The problem is the power of sin in our lives makes that impossible. Makes it impossible for us to do all of the things that it would take in order to earn our own way to heaven. The idea that our effort can't get us what we want goes against the grain of our pride. We think that human effort has to play a part in our salvation because human effort plays a part in everything else in our whole life. So instead of relying on God's grace, we try to relax God's standard into something we can manage if we try hard enough. We figured that we don't murder, so probably we're okay. We're probably ahead of the curve, right? I don't murder. Those people do. I'm ahead of the curve. But the, the difficulty with that thinking is God doesn't grade on a curve. You know, God, God isn't the, like, pushover teacher that you had in middle school that, that grades on a curve. And because grading on a curve is just comparing you to everyone else. Like, the standard for a curve is how good everyone else in the class is doing. So the, grading on a curve is the person that gets the highest score becomes the highest possible score, and then everyone else is graded compared to that, like comparatively. But the problem is, we're not graded compared to other people. God's standard isn't be better than most people. God's standard is holiness. God's standard is himself. God's standard is perfection. That that this is what needs to happen for you to be in heaven. This is what needs to happen, perfection. And, and, And we fall short of perfection. We, we think we're graded on a curve because yeah, I'm better than most people. God doesn't grade on a curve. Paul says there's no difference. You caught that part? There's no difference. None between us. There's no difference between the older brother uh, who, who's desperately trying to earn God's approval by working really hard and the younger brother who's wasting his whole life in wild living. There's no difference between people who are desperately trying to work to earn God's approval and people who are like, forget it. I'm just gonna live the way I want. Paul says, no difference. All have sinned. All fall short. No one is justified by what they do. I told you this was a story about what we deserve and what we get. We all deserve to starve while feeding the pigs. You get that, right? We all deserve death. Romans says the wages of sin is death. Wages, that's what you get for doing a job, right? All the work, all the hard work we do to try to earn God's approval, we earn the wages of sin, 
But the rest of that verse says the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. See, that's not what we get. Thank God we don't get what we deserve. The transition from verse 23 to 24 here in Romans chapter 3 is just as shocking as the moment when the prodigal son returns and the father runs out to him because it says all have sinned and fall short. This is like the most hopeless piece of scripture ever. All have sinned and fall short. And then the very next verse, and all are justified freely by his grace. See, that's the first thing that grace does. It It justifies us. It puts us back into the relationship with God that we were meant to have. Justification, that's a legal word. It's what a judge does when he declares a defendant to be innocent. So being justified by grace means that everything God does for us is by his choice alone. Nothing we say or do requires God to make us right with himself. There's nothing I can do that forces God's hand in order to, to that, you know, that he has to then justify me. He has to make me right. We're made right with God. We are justified by his grace. His call, not mine. It's his to give, not mine to earn. And so the second thing that grace does is in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are saved by grace. We're justified by grace, we're saved by grace. Ah, but wait, Paul doesn't say that, does he? He says we're saved by grace through faith. So that means there's something we can do to deserve it after all, isn't it? You see how your wheels turn? Like you immediately like, wait a minute, there's got to be something. It's got to be more than this. Oh, through faith, saved by grace, through faith. See, I got to have faith. That's a song, right? Got to have faith. And that means that there's something we can do. We can deserve it, right? Well, no. See, the word that's used here for faith in the New Testament is the Greek word pistis. And it means that, it means so much more than we think that it means. Because like when we, when we read faith, we think that it's like believing certain things, like just mentally. Like I, I, it's like not, we think knowledge, don't we? That, that faith is believing, like, yeah, I think that's true, I think that's true, I think that's true, so I have faith. And faith is so much deeper than that. Um, faith is, the best definition I've seen is faith is active reliance on a reliable God. Faith is trusting that God is totally reliable, trusting it so much that I base my life on it. In, in an active way, like it changes the way I actually live. So like faith is a very action-based word. Faith in the Bible is a covenant word that throughout scripture, God makes these promises and commits himself to his people, not because they deserve it or earn it, because, but because he is happy to do it, because that's who he is. He makes these promises. He commits himself to us. And then his people in turn are called to trust his promises and live by his promises Again, not to pay him back for what he's done, just in res- that, that is the response to, to, to God's love. So, so what is the gift of God? Faith, you know, that, that, this idea that you know, it's, it's a gift, what is the gift? The gift is salvation. See, first, in, in Romans 3, God justifies us and restores our relationship with him. He makes it right. And then here in, in uh, Ephesians 2, he saves us 
from a life of sin. He saves us from the, the wages of sin, the death that we earn. Uh, Paul takes a, another shot at our pride in, in verse 10, right, when he says we are God's handiwork, that, that our salvation and our new life are the result of God's hard work, not ours. Like that we are God's workmanship is what the NIV used to say. So salvation is not from works, but verse 10 tells us that it is for works. That's, a, that's an important distinction. Works don't save me. The good things I do don't save me, but I am saved in order to do good things. That's an important distinction in Scripture. We can't do anything to earn our salvation We can't earn right standing with God, but being saved and being justified does something to us. It changes me. It motivates me to live differently in an active way. That's the third thing that grace does, that we're shaped by grace. Grace grace shapes us. Uh, In in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It, it, grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for, for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. The same grace that saves us from the penalty our sins deserve and restores our relationship with our Heavenly Father, that same grace shapes us by teaching us how we should live instead. Even when we get to the point when when we can accept that we're saved by God's grace, even when we can accept that we're saved by God's grace, that there's nothing we can do, there's nothing I can do to earn the salvation, we still have a hard time with grace. Because people tend to go to opposite extremes. Some see grace as a a get-out-of-jail-free card so they can live their lives however they want. It's kind of like watching a detective solve a crime on a cop show. I'm totally addicted to cop shows, by the way. Um, solve a crime on a cop show, only to find out that the murderer has diplomatic immunity. Doesn't that mean well, you, like, you want to punch your TV? They're like, that is the most overused thing in the cop show. Or like, you, like, you get to the whole thing, it's like, oh, this case is a slam dunk. Like, oh, wait, diplomatic immunity he can do whatever he wants, right? And, and so, and that's how we feel, right? We're like, oh wait, grace. Grace means I can do whatever I want, right? And so we go, we go to one extreme and we say, oh, I, that means I can do whatever I want. Or we go to the other extreme and, and we, we're like, okay, I get it. Uh, grace is for salvation. There's nothing I can do to earn it. But now I gotta spend the rest of my life paying God back, Right? That's, I, I fall more into this, you know, this, this trap. I got to spend the rest of my life, pay, like it's a loan. Like that God gave me some kind of loan with a good interest rate. And I got to spend the rest of my life paying the loan back um, to, to God. You know, he did this thing for me. It's amazing. And now I'm paying him back. It takes so, like, you, no one has enough life to pay it all back. You just can't. You can't earn it. You can't pay it back. And, and so we think that this idea, you know, the, like the younger brother, we either think that, you know, like the young, younger brother, that grace gives us license to live however we want, or we think like the older brother, that, that our good deeds, that the, all the work that we do makes us more acceptable to God. It makes us better than other people. You know, we think that, that, that we earn it. And neither way is the right way to respond to grace. 
When you experience God's grace, when, when, you know, when, when you don't deserve it, you know you don't deserve it, and God comes running out anyway and accepts you back you know, with full rights and privileges, you experience God's grace, you should want to express your gratitude by living a better life, Titus says. Not to pay God back or not to earn his grace, but just that's, I want to be better because of what God has done for me. So we go back to this story, and we're happy. We're happy for the younger son, but at the same time, we're like, oh, wait a minute, there's another son. This older son comes in from the field, and the welcome home party is in full swing. He comes in from his hard day's work, and when he finds out what's going on, he is just, he's too angry to go inside. So for the second time that day, the father goes out to where one of his sons is at. That that says a lot about the father to me. For the second time that day, for the younger brother and the older brother, the father goes out to where the son is at rather than just waiting for the son to come to him. And, And the older son, he's so concerned with justice and fairness and getting what he deserves. And it's clear that he feels entitled to more than his deadbeat brother gets. The father owes him for all his years of service. The the older brother's been around the father all this time, but he doesn't seem to know him very well because he assumes that he has to work to earn his father's approval and his father's blessings. But listen, when we truly understand what God's grace is and what it does for us, the only thing that's left for us to do is to thank him. The younger son approaches his father with the right attitude, He's totally at his mercy. He's completely humble. He recognizes he has no right to demand anything. He he royally messed up. He has no right to make any demands of his father other than just, I'm your son, you're my dad, can you help me? That's it. That's the only right that this guy has. I'm your son, will will you help me? I don't deserve your help, but, but will you because you're my dad? Holding on to this hope. Maybe he'll help me. And when we approach God that way, humbly recognizing that we need him instead of trying to earn his favor, instead of, instead of you owe me this, we recognize I need you. I, maybe some desperate hope that God will, will, will look on me with grace instead of trying to earn his favor. We find that he's waiting, not just waiting, we find that he's running to, to, to us to welcome us with a party. See, faith is trusting in the presence of God. Faith is trusting that God will take care of me. If you constantly doubt your salvation, if you've been a Christian, you've been doing this church thing for a while, but you go through through this anxiety, you constantly doubt your salvation, ask yourself why. Ask yourself, why do I feel that way? Because if God really is like the Father in this story, He's ready to run out and meet you the second you turn back to him. Do you really think that God in the end will be like, oh yeah, but wait, remember all that stuff you did? I I won't forget, you know, like, but that's what we think. Do you really think that God's going to hold your sin against you in the end? Is that the kind of father that you think God is? I think the thing that leads to this nagging question about whether or not we're really saved is our attitude of performance. We're still trying to earn God's grace. 
We have this sinking feeling that we haven't done enough, that there's more to do, there's more to be done in order to earn God's grace. And the reason we have that sinking feeling is because it's true. We haven't done enough. We could never do enough. The truest thing the younger brother says in the whole story is when he comes to his father and he says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I am no longer worthy to become your son. But the beauty of God's grace is that he calls us his son or his daughter anyway. That's my story. I'm no longer worthy to be called God's son. But God stubbornly continues to call me his son. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't deserve it, certainly. But God continues to see me as his son. Full rights, full privileges, full member of his family. That is grace. God does what only God can do. I'm no longer worthy to be called his son. You're not worthy either. But God makes us worthy by justifying us, by making us right with him, by saving us from a a life that's just barreling down the hill towards sin and death, uh, and by shaping us into the people that he made us to be. Thank God for his grace. Let me pray. God, I just pray for the strength to stop running on the wheel trying to earn your approval. God, I, I confess that I have times where I am desperate for you and for other people to see me in a certain way, that all I'm trying to do is deserve your love. I just want to earn your love. I want to earn their approval. I want to earn it. And God, I, I confess that I can't. But God, thank you that you can. Thank you for those moments of clarity in my life where I understand that there's nothing that can be done to earn your love. That your love is so extravagant that, that, that as a, the gift that you give us is so over the top that the only thing that we're left to do is thank you. God, thank you for your grace. And it's in Jesus' name, amen. So the band's gonna lead us in a song as we respond to God's grace with thanksgiving this morning. And if you'd like to pray with someone while we sing, um, you can feel free to come up forward um, and uh, you can find one of our prayer counselors here at the front of the room. Um, But right now, let's all stand together uh, and uh, express our thanks to God for his grace.